and welcome to episode 14 of Investing Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And in today's episode, we have Christian Perline and Jason Somerville. They are the founders and partners at Global Y Advisors. They're basically taking the big, broad concepts of investment banking into the, into the world of online businesses. And in this episode, we get to chat about all the different types of structures, assessments, and best practices when it comes to buying and selling businesses and the advisory process and what it takes to go through a transaction with the help of advisors like them. We also talk about COVID and the impact that it has had in the market and this is a fun episode. So enjoy. Thanks. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks, hey, man. thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. So I'm super excited to chat with you guys. Apparently you are the people that I needed to talk to before going through my exit process, but I'm glad that I have you now. It's never too late. That's right. And I'm excited to hear from you guys, what you guys do for your clients. So why don't we go ahead and give some context on what is Global Wire Advisors and what are some of the things that you guys do for your clients? Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, again, thank you for having us on the show. We uh, appreciate it. Appreciate your audience's time. Appreciate your time. So yeah, Global Wired Advisors was uh, started just over about two and a half years ago, and it was actually a, a, our sister firm is called Providium Advisors. So it was really started uh, from Providium Advisors. And also we have Providium Group. So Providium Group is our private equity effort looking for very specific types of deals in very specific verticals. Providium Advisors was started about over four years ago, and it was the, the reason it started was because there's a large gap between a business owner who has a very good cash flowing business that's looking for a great exit and wanting to yield high outcomes. Their choices are really to go to one of two places. One is a business broker or a middle market investment bank. And now you've got some lower middle market investment banks that are out there, but it's unfortunately far and few between. So there really was this giant gap between the two. And so Providium Advisors was started with the, the three other partners of Global Wired Advisors, Joe, Jason, and Chris. Jason is here with me. And the idea was to take large investment in institutional investment banking acumen and pedigree and apply that process to a business owner that's uh, in the lower middle market, right? Someone that's got cash flow, six to $700,000 uh, and going on up, right? And really the idea is to yield a better outcome. Well, while they were running a very successful firm, fast forward two years and lots of buyers were asking for digital assets. And so through happenstance, we all met together and I became the fourth partner in Global Wired Advisors. And my background is a little bit di digitally focused. So the idea is we wanted to bring a process to this part of the market that mimics what you would normally get out of an institutional investment banking process. And the idea, it, it, and it's happening, the proof of concept has already been here. It yields a better outcome. Um, in many cases, it's indexed higher multiples because our process is very, very invested instead of being highly passive. And so that's really why we're here. We, we love this part of the market. We love working with business owners and small business owners. We love seeing them go through one of the largest liquidity events of their life. It's completely life-changing and we love that. I mean, we really have a passion for, for that, that type of business. 
Yeah, and I know there's so many different things that I, I, I want to ask you guys and talk about, but why don't we go on kind of like the basics between the, the, the difference between a broker and an advisor and what is it that you guys, uh, you think that it's kind of the main value that you guys provide to your clients? Yeah, I'll start and I'll let Jason fill in any blanks he feels like I may have missed, but probably the largest difference is it's high investment versus a, a passive approach, Right. When you work with an experienced M&A advisor, you're going to go through a process where you're making sure your company is been thoroughly has gone through due diligence before going to market. We're going to look at every aspect of the company. We're going to understand the vision of the business. We're going to understand the goals of the owner. And we're also going to match that up with what's happening in the capital markets. So we're highly versed and well-versed on, on all of the macroeconomic activity, all the microeconomic activity, and how that's going to affect a potential exit. When you go through our process, we're going to effectively extrapolate as much of the opportunity and the well, effectively the vision uh, for this business and where it's going, Right. Because that's a very important piece of this whole puzzle is making a, a, a letting a buyer see where this business is going to, to go and what it's going to be when it grows up. It's really important. Taking an invested approach, we're doing the work. We're selling the business. We're not going to just put you on the phone every single time someone raises their hand and says they want to speak to you, Gabriel, right? We're going to say, no, that's not. We, we have a lot of conversations before that happens. And in most cases, by way of example, most of our transactions, we will have put the deal in front of anywhere between what, 70 to 80 plus people. And you as the owner, you're probably only going to get on two or three at the very most management calls, highly structured management calls. We're going to coach you, make sure you understand who the buyer is, what the private, uh, private equity firm may represent or what the buyer may represent. And, and make sure you're, it's vetted and you're ready for that call. And then, of course, once we get into towards race towards and closing, right, we have an IOI. We negotiate the IOI on your behalf. We move towards We're also deal structure experts. And so we're not going to let anything get by. We always we joke a lot around here that we're pretty good at, at reading legal documents in some, some cases better than, uh, than lawyers, but no offense to any lawyers listening to the show. But uh, we comb through all the legal docs with you and we make sure that there's, there's no gremlins or Easter bunnies that are, that are hiding. And we also uh, ensure to, uh, to get you a great structure when it comes to the, the final exit. Did I, did I miss anything, Jason? Or No, I mean, I'll just add, I think from an active perspective where, where that tends to really kind of be most important is sort of in the beginning, when we're pulling materials together and pulling financials together, we're basically being incredibly strategic about that. Our marketing materials are very lengthy and pretty involved from a detail standpoint. And we think that's really important to the process as part of kind of the financial analysis that we do. We put pro forma projections out there for, for the market to see, and we work a lot with our clients to help build those. You know, those are pretty important to the process as well. And then as we're marketing, we, we kind of take a very strategic approach to how to launch a deal and, and the right groups of potential bar, uh, buyers to market that deal to. That's right. We don't do uh, what you call spray and pray, where you just uh, blast the deal out to the entire universe and hope something. We think there's a lot better approach to, to marketing a company. And that's kind of strategically focused in terms of really solid core groups of 
acquirers that are going to care the most about that company and want to pay the most for that you know company. And then I'll just echo what Chris said. Once we're getting down to the deal negotiations and documentation and due diligence, we really help quarterback that whole process. From a due diligence standpoint, that can be awfully burdensome for clients to have to go through. And what we're trying to do every step of the way is is shoulder as much of the work as uh, as possible so that our clients can do their day job, which is running the company well, while we go out and, and do our job, which is getting them a great deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, in terms of, I know we want to focus on kind of like the buyer side, but in terms of companies that are looking to sell, and we're talking about companies that are less than $2 million in net profit a year, do you recommend then to get engaged with you a year, two years before wanting to sell? Because there's a lot of prep work, and there's, like I was saying, uh, that's the reason of the podcast is there's their accounting aspect, the legal aspect, the tax aspect when you engage on on a potential exit. So how far in advance do you guys recommend reaching out to a company like you guys? Well, I'll start and Chris can jump in. I mean, I think what we see is we see a variety of time periods in terms of when companies come to us, everything from very early on all the way to, hey, I want to go to market tomorrow sort of approach. So our business has a pretty mixed bag. In terms of what's, I think, ideal is we would say that a minimum of kind of six months before you might want to go to market is probably a good time to start working with us because what we're going to do, I mean, at the very beginning, when we first meet a potential client, before we even get to the point where we're talking about engaging uh, with the client formally and creating a formal relationship, we're going to have a lot of discussions even before that happens. We're going to get to know them, what their business is. We're going to look at financials. We're going to talk about the structure. And there will be a lot of opportunity during those initial discussions for us to provide maybe good feedback around what they might do to help create a more marketable company when it does go out to market. So I think it's good to have a little bit of time in there where Mm -hmm. you can potentially take some of of our recommendations and put them into action before you go to market. If you add, no, I would, I just echo that. I think it's, that's, that's some of the best advice we can give, which is, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're looking to engage with an engagement letter or engage with the client. But as long as we can start having conversations early on, as Jason mentioned, at least six months, we can give some really, really good advice and consultation in terms of things that might need to be fixed, as Jason just said. So, Well, the other thing that comes up, I'll just throw in real quick, is we deal with a lot of clients that are experiencing really high growth rates. So one of the things that's fairly common is they, they look out into the future and they say, well, my metrics are going to be a lot better six months from now. How should I manage that from yeah. a marketing standpoint, from an exit standpoint? And so a lot of times we'll sort of get involved earlier on because of those factors as well. That's right. Okay. Now, in terms of the different um, fee structures or ways that you guys get compensated as advisor, is that something that even before, like you're saying, before sending or, or, or getting into an engagement letter, is there a hourly consulting package that you guys offer? And the reason I ask is like, of course, I got a lot of people asking and friends and, and other founders that they would love to see if their company's even ready or they could be ready in a year or two years, but they are afraid to really 
get distracted. So I think it's kind of nice to have those situations where even when I went through the process, like, wow, I can do this. No way. I mean, I have no clue. And then, yeah. So do you guys have any solutions into like early consulting or you said, how do you guys structure your fees for uh, people that want to sell their company? Well, the, the short answer is the way that we approach our fees in general is we customize every engagement effectively. We don't have a cookie cutter fee structure that we just impose onto clients. We sit down with a client, we figure out what the scope of work is, and we create a fee structure that makes sense for all parties. So if, if there's a scenario where let's say a client wants us to help them more intensively for a few months prior to going to market, then we would build effectively almost like a consulting period prior to a traditional go-to-market period. Uh, and we'll create a, a customized structure for that. So the short answer to your question is, yeah, I mean, we're very consultative. That's kind of our approach is we really don't try to, to fit a square peg into a round hole. We try to create scenarios where the fit is, is really good from an engagement standpoint. Yeah, Chris, I don't know if you'd add to that. No, yeah, I, that's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> and when it comes to listing and, and after there's a engagement letter, there is also a commission structure for the, the fee, even that you still representing and advising and consulting. There's also, like you said, there's a custom proposal or a custom term that you guys may agree. And that includes definitely a brokerage kind of typical commission fee structure as well, right? It does. Yes. I mean, we like our interests to be aligned with our client. So the vast majority of our compensation will come at the closing of a deal. So that's typically a, a success fee is what we call that. And that's going to be a percentage of the transaction value at, you know, at closing. So and those again, those also we customize. We often start out with what we would call is a, you know, a typical structure. But more often than not, that structure gets modified before we are you know, finished. And, and we, we make it clear to our clients that, look, we're proposing a certain fee structure. We're open to discussion. We're open to modification. At some point, obviously, the fee structure doesn't make sense for us. And, and it's not something we would want to take on. But we want there to be a collaborative kind of uh, process there. And we're very um, careful about who we bring on as we're, we often say no more than we say yes uh, to clients because it really makes, it's very important that the fit is there yeah. on both sides for both parties. And, and I would say it's more than just being profitable. There's a lot of details that go into a successful business than just being able to show profitability. So yeah, that's a big part of how we're selective with our with our criteria. So yeah, no, absolutely. And before we dive into kind of the outlook and what's happening in the market, maybe we touch base on that in terms of there's definitely not a formula, one kind of all-encompassing valuation rule for online businesses. But I think one of the things that people still don't get to understand is not just okay, there's going to be a multiple in your net earnings. There's also the variables that you mentioned. So I would love to see if you guys can expand some of those or is it the recurrent revenue, is the customer concentration? What are kind of like the main things that you see in that, especially for buyers, right? So for the seller, 
they they may have those metrics. They may have, okay, we have the churn rates. We understand how the customer behave. We understand the lifetime value of, of our customer. But then the buyer comes in and say, well, listen, after we do due diligence, we're looking at these numbers. They don't look good at all. And that's going to affect the the price or the final price. So do you see any surprises at the final kind of stage when initially everything looked good and then when you go do due diligence you find those in terms of those those variables and and if so what are those variables that affect the the price sure well i'll answer that last part first actually one of the things that we do in our process up front is that we try and make sure that there are no surprises on the back end and so that's why we kind of structure our process in the beginning a lot like what a buyer due diligence is going to be. So our due diligence and our initial request list from our clients looks a lot like a buyer due diligence request list. And we want to make sure that if there are bodies buried somewhere, that we find them all before we go out and market the company. So that's kind of that piece. I mean, I think for our deals, I mean, I can't think of one where we've been surprised in due diligence because of the process. But what I will say is, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a a fairly wide range of metrics that that comes into play when we're talking about valuation. Our key verticals are e-commerce, SaaS, digital agencies. That's kind of where most of our activity comes into play. And the metrics are definitely different, right, for different types of businesses. I think for an e-commerce business, Growth rates, profitability rates, um, average order values, repeat, you know, customer rates, all of those things are incredibly important. I think you can have two businesses that historically their financials look almost identical, but they're worth quite a bit different values in the marketplace because some of these other metrics may be very, very different. Again, like you mentioned, kind of churn rate, anytime you have a SaaS type business or a SaaS type model, that's going to be pretty huge there in terms of how much you're you're spending to acquire a customer and, and how long you're going to keep that customer. So those are all things that matter. I think what we're finding, certainly vertical is a word we use a lot. Vertical matters. There are certain um, industries, product types, customer types, let's say, that are more valuable in the marketplace than others. If you're talking about a digital agency, a lot of times customer concentration comes into play as well as typical contract terms. How locked in are those customers with you? Those kinds of things. They all play a role in the market. And the market is a dynamic, ever-changing thing. In a moment, we'll get into kind of where things are and where where we think they're headed. but, But it's constantly moving. What was the case two months ago, it typically won't be the case today. And, and even though in normal times, those movements over short periods tend to be fairly small. I mean, I think it seems like these days there's some large event every other year that turns markets on its head. So you know, I don't know if that was specific enough of an answer to your question, but I think there's a lot of variables that go into play other than just trailing 12 month you know, cash flow. Yeah, no, absolutely. That definitely makes sense. And I, I got to find somebody that specializes in this whole thing about metrics, just because I've seen a lot of different cases where you may have certain metrics and then the way you extrapolate and you really read the data, then it certainly does not make sense. So when you're talking about different platforms like WooCommerce or Shopify, 
and then you got all kind of different products and you have free trials and you suddenly you got all this complexity and the metrics are not just one thing. It's not going to be just, oh, you're going automatic, automatically in a magical way, you're going to get all things uh, line up and you're just going to export it. Now you have your metric. It's more complex than that, unfortunately. And that's after even talking to some of the people in the show. I talked to some of the brokers as well. It's the same issue. So I would love to bring anybody that's specializing in like metrics and really digging into metrics, let me know. But yeah, I think for now, I would love to really dive in into what you guys um, have been reporting and you have a lot of uh, knowledge in either performance and historic performance on, on the market. But now, of course, we're going through the time that recording the podcast is May 2020. So we're going through this really interesting time and the, the coronavirus and whatnot. So I would love to hear your thoughts and what are some of the recommendations for buyers during these times and, and any outlook for the next year or so. Okay, absolutely. I'm going to start with the, kind of the client side, what you're hearing from potential sellers. Yeah. That can flow into yeah, actual marketing. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, on the client side, what's really interesting, at least most of the clients that we are currently working with, currently talking to, or have had conversations with in the past and they've surfaced back up, they're seeing some unprecedented growth. I mean, there is a real halo effect happening because of this pandemic, right? So what I mean by halo effect is there's some that are seeing literal unprecedented type of growth, right? 50, 70% plus year over year, 100% plus year over year. But even uh, there's still a, a decent amount of folks that are getting that halo effect of people just inside, online, and ordering. And it's intriguing that SARS in 2003 caused a, a large portion of the Chinese population to buy online. And this current pandemic accelerated, I would say, where we were headed from a e-commerce retail perspective, where we were going to be in, say, two years from now, accelerated it in two months, basically. And you, you've, you trained especially the generation with discretionary income, baby boomers, you you train them how to consistently order online. So from the client side, uh, sellers are seeing some incredible growth rates. And, and like I said, some really good halo effect from this. The question, of course, always, and this will flow right into the buy side, but is that sustainable? And so far, the answer has been with all of our clients, we're not seeing a yet. Now, that may happen, that may come, in some cases, it may have actually been a true injection, got them to another quote unquote level. So that's effectively what we've been seeing from the client side. Yeah. And I think there's some obvious headwinds that are out there from just kind of an overall M&A deal activity perspective, just in broader markets. I think things that most people would probably understand. I mean, when you have this kind of economic shock that, that has occurred throughout, there's a lot of economic activity that has kind of slowed down or, or stopped altogether. And now there's a lot more uncertainty about you know what the future is going to bring from a macro uh, economic perspective. Uh, so those types of things are headwinds against people wanting to take on risk and purchase companies. But at the same time, you've got tailwinds in certain sectors. Anything that's sort of pro-COVID, let's say, that's actually benefited, all the available capital that is out there looking for deals is looking in a much narrower range of potential industries now. So those are kind of the, the tailwinds for certain sectors. And I think what we're seeing is 
whether it's everything from working from home and just constantly using online meeting apps or ordering a bunch of stuff on Amazon or any of the things that are really have taken off because of what's going on, there's a lot more buyers out there all of a sudden for those types of companies. So interestingly enough, it's this tug of war happening right now where you've got tailwinds, you've got headwinds, and what appears to be the case so far, we're still early in this kind of aftermath, is that the market is seeing pretty significant activity in these kind of digitally native sectors that have continued to perform in a pandemic. And you're seeing capital. You know, there was a lot of capital. We actually did this. Uh, and we were talking before this at Rhodium. We did a presentation of kind of the market outlook back in October. And at the time, we were talking about all the dry you know, powder that was on corporate balance sheets and on private equity books. And so most of that powder is still here. Now, some of it got used to shore up liquidity and portfolio businesses, but most of it is, is still around. And it's looking you know, for deals that make sense. And a lot of the deals that people were considering before this no longer make sense. So I think from a buyer's perspective, it's an interesting time because you're probably going to look at the risk side of the equation and say, I don't know. I feel a little less comfortable uh, than I used to feel about some of these risks. The U.S. consumer, certain business activities, are they really going to come back after all? But at the same time, the market for digitally native businesses is getting a little more crowded. And so valuations are really kind of holding in there pretty well. So I think if you're someone who's in the market for buying a company, whether it's a $2 million company or a $200 million company, I think you've got a lot of the same questions to ask yourself and come up with your answers, because I think you're going to have a choice of either saying, look, this is a macro shift that's going to be here for a long time. So these businesses are fundamentally in you know, the catbird seat, or you're going to say, it's still too risky. I'm going to hold on to my money, right? You're going to be in one of the two boats. And I think what we're seeing is, I think, lots of people ending up in boat number one, but still plenty of people in boat number two as well. And it's going to be interesting over the next few months to see how it all plays out. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know you guys mentioned that you have this other company that it's more into a different segment of the market. So when it comes to online companies or e-commerce companies that are those companies that perhaps private equity will not necessarily get involved because these are unsophisticated sellers. Uh, do you see any opportunities for buyers in there where like if a buyer is looking to get into this market, like you were mentioned, they're getting excited about the e-commerce, everybody's talking about e-commerce and now they want to tap into it. Are there any recommendations for buyers getting into that segment, even though the sellers are unsophisticated? Uh, of course, if they work with a company like you guys, you guys are going to help them come up with the structure and everything else. But what I've seen so far as well is even going through my own deal flow and looking on all kinds of different brokers and all online listings out there. It's like, wow, how is this been, you know, out there? How is this company being, how is this company listed if it's just such a terrible, either financials or like, yeah, it's, I've seen all kinds of different things. So yeah, I'm wondering any recommendations for buyers when it comes to that. 
Yeah, look, I think from a buyer standpoint, there's opportunity in the market to potentially take advantage. When I say take advantage, I don't mean in a you know kind of a negative way. I mean more from an opportunistic standpoint. Sellers that are a little less sophisticated, let's say, or more importantly, to say sellers that have businesses that are either kind of a little bit too small for larger capital to, to be interested in, or maybe are a little bit more centralized to a handful of SKUs, let's say if it's an e-commerce business, or maybe there's some customer concentrations in there. That's your chance to potentially buy something at a valuation that's really attractive uh, compared to the overall risk level in the company. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why myself and and you know the rest of our partners moved into what we're calling the lower middle market is because we saw a tremendous amount of potential value there on both sides of the table, but even certainly from a buy side perspective. So much of the larger market, the middle market and up, is so competitive every single time there's a deal that it's really driven valuations really high, quite a bit higher. So there's real value to be had in the current environment. If you're someone that is educated, that understands the market, understands you know kind of the businesses that you're really going after, you're going to have opportunity. Also, because what I mentioned earlier about the, the uncertain times we're now in, sellers are not immune to, to that either. I mean, you know, they're looking at it going, wow, maybe I dodged a bullet here and, and I happen to have one of the businesses that's performing fairly well. But at the same time, they're saying, well, this would be a good time for me to exit. And I'm not going to necessarily try to get every last dollar because I understand we're in a kind of very uncertain economic time. So that's an opportunity for a buyer to come in and say, OK, look, I'm willing to do a little extra work. I'm willing to take on what the market perceives as maybe a little extra risk, but I happen to know it's not actually extra risk because I've been, I rolled up my sleeves, I understood right. the business, and I have a little bit of a, of a background to work with. And that's when you can create opportunities for yourself as a buyer where you can have really attractive entry points at a time where, I mean, look, the beauty about markets is they're created because there's differing opinions, right? If there weren't, if everyone believed the same thing, we wouldn't have a market. And so, I mean, we could legitimately be in a position now where a lot of these businesses are for the next year, two, three, four years are going to be double, triple what they were. There's a lot of opinions about that, about where the next six or 12 or 24 months is going to be. And that's why you have a market because some people say, the world has changed forever. Nothing's going to be like it ever was. And now e-commerce is going to go from, say, 13% of retail sales to 30 like this year, right? Some people and other people are more like, well, hold on, maybe not so fast. Maybe it's a three or four month thing. And then you kind of go back to where you were. And so those differing uh, opinions create markets. And I think what's always been the case in the world of entrepreneurs is, you're going to take a bet on yourself, right? You're going to bet on your ability to analyze a potential asset, buy it at the right price, and then make it worth more later. That's right. Got it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you guys mentioned deal structures. So for buyers, of course, they're always going to be trying to maximize the the 
what they're getting for what they're offering, what not, and the sellers will want to get most cash up front in most cases, anyways. But do you see any anything being affected right now to the due to the conditions that we're going through? Are there any main deal structures that are being seen? Are you still seeing a lot of just cash upfront transactions kind of things? And especially again, we're we're talking about just for context for the audience. We're talking about e-commerce businesses, less than $2 million deals kind of thing, not the private equity, because like you mentioned, $2 million or $5 million in, in profit and up, that's more the private equity kind of, they handle that and it's a whole different ballgame. But in this one, any deal structures that you think are kind of open, uprising? Well, one thing I'll say, and, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm assuming most of your audience probably knows about some of the changes to the SBA program, but I'll go ahead and mention those. One huge thing that was part of the last uh, stimulus bill was that all new uh, business acquisition loans that are uh, SBA, 7A, the first six months of payments is, is actually free. When I say free, it's not as though you actually just wait six months to make your first payment. Effectively, the SBA makes the payments for you, which from a cash flow perspective is a pretty huge differentiator, especially if you're borrowing, say, 80% of the purchase price. So I would say SBA structures are more popular than ever because of that. Now, at the same time, lenders are, are really bogged down with the PPP loans. So it's taking a little longer to get them done, but a lot of people want to take advantage of that of that six-month free kind of payment feature. Now, with the SBA deals, for example, the SBA doesn't really do earnouts. So earnouts are really not common. What you see in those structures almost all the time is some seller. So you'll have a piece of seller financing, call it 10% of the deal, maybe 15 sometimes, depending. So we're seeing that quite frequently in the kind of smaller deal world. So the SBA limit is 5 million loan size for, for new business acquisitions. So um, kind of a purchase price usually of 6 million or under on those. I will say that buyers certainly are, are more inclined to try and build bigger earnouts into the deals or shift more of the purchase price into earnouts. And I think that's just a reflection of just a little bit lower risk tolerance, right? Because of the macro uh, environment. So we're definitely seeing buyers kind of trying to to do that. I think sellers are always resistant to earnouts. <laughs> so that just goes to good old fashioned finding out if there's a, a real middle ground or not. Just a traditional type of negotiation process there. I'd say that's you know that's more common. I mean, we don't really work with any distressed. Um, clients that's not really our focus so everyone we work with is is not only doing well typically doing quite well growing pretty substantially i i have heard that certainly there are some more distressed type deals coming to market and i think you can certainly expect that will continue i think it's going to depend on sector though i'll give you a good example where I was having a conversation the other day about a deal that, that someone was working on. They were, they're also working on a deal for us. It was a buyer. And, and they were telling me that they were looking at a, an online ticket, a concert ticket, and athletic event ticket site, right? That, and obviously, their business has gone to nothing in the short term. But So that's kind of a distress-type deal. But the buyer's bet was, well, what? 
it's going to come back. I don't know when, and I don't know how big, and I've got to make a bet on that because right now the company's burning money, but how long is it going to burn before it turns cash positive again? And then how long before everyone are buying concert tickets and sporting event tickets, just like they were before. So that's a good example of the kind of deals that are also coming to market and, and distress deals are always ripe for structure, right? Mm -hmm. Where the buyer wants to bring more structure into the deal and the seller is more willing to live with structure in the deal, depending on exactly how distressed the scenario is. So that's another thing. I mean, I'd say buyers, most buyers, their stomach isn't strong enough for distressed type deals. But for buyers whose stomachs are, you're going to have some opportunities because there's some sectors here, even within digital, that have been left out of, of the positive halo effect um, of this. And the one, the example I just gave is, is one of, of a number there. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. And I know there's also some bunch of different opinions and comments about this disaster loans and SBA support and a lot of businesses have been approved. And I think some of the discussion or the controversy right there is like, hey, can you use that money to buy? Of course, you're not going to buy, like you say, a $5 million deal, but perhaps a six-figure uh, half a million dollar kind of thing with that SBA loan that was a disaster relief kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And based on what I read so far, it's based on the conditions that they are explaining the SBA. They say that you cannot necessarily do that. But we'll see, I think this, there still need to be more insights in exactly how that is supposed to pay now. I don't know if you have any opinion on that, but a question that I do have about that, and if you have an opinion, on that, that's cool. But if somebody did take a disaster relief, which is also an SBA loan, if two, two three years from now, they do want to get a $5 million um, loan from like a, a SBA loan for an acquisitions, do you think that that will be uh, in conflict, meaning they will not be able to get approved because they already have an open loan with the SBA or? Sure. Well, I think that the two main types of loans that are being issued right now are the prepayment or excuse me, the PPP loan and the economic disaster assistance loan. So in both cases, like with the PPP loan, there's certain things that make the loan forgivable, but there's nothing that says you have to use the loan on those things. The only consequence, though, is that those monies aren't forgivable. So you will have to pay them back. And those are turning into two-year loans at a 1% interest rate. So I think that's really the difference on the PPP is that you took the loan, you had an opportunity for that loan really to be free money if you spent it on certain things. And if you didn't, then it's not free money. It's just a loan and you pay it back over two years. So I think you still, our view is that you still have the choice of how to use the money it's ultimately, that'll determine if it's forgivable, though, or not. With the economic loan, it's a little bit different. They've been a little slower to approve those. They did the PPP loans out of the gate and the economic loans, and there's a lot smaller pot of money out there for those right now approved by Congress. So same kind of thing with those, though. They go through a little bit more underwriting, and you're sort of, and they were, they're not forgivable under any circumstances. So you're always going to have to pay them back, but usually they're 30 years in, in length. So they're very favorable from a repayment perspective. That one is more a scenario of they're looking for you to try and 
sort of prove that you were economically damaged, right, by the by the virus. Now, it, it's really hard to not be economically damaged by the pandemic. So our view there is that you can use that money for whatever you want once you get it, knowing that you're going to have to pay it back. And that like any other SBA loan, until you start missing payments, they don't care about anything. Right. (laughs) But if you start missing payments, then all of a sudden they start to care about a lot of things. But your final point is, no, we don't think it's going to affect a future loan. If you take one of these, it shouldn't have any effect. I mean, there's no rule. And we know a lot of people out there that that over the years have had two, three, four different just kind of traditional 7A acquisition loans. There's no rule that says you can't have multiple loans. What they what the 7A rule always was, though, is that in aggregate, you couldn't have more than five million dollars um, of loans to one guarantor. And so that would be, I think, let's say your disaster loan is five hundred thousand. I think for planning purposes, you should probably assume that if you did an acquisition loan, it would probably be limited to you know four and a half million or whatever was left of the disaster loan at that point. You should make that assumption. Now you said something earlier. I think that it's also very all sorts of things are going to happen with respect to these government programs that we don't even know about yet. <laughs> That's true, right? Yeah. I mean, look, they're already talking about the next stimulus bill, right? That's going to be three trillion dollars and. I mean, there's probably going to be two or three more large stimulus bills, and they're all probably going to have components, money for small businesses through SBA. So there's a lot more to come, I think, uh, on this whole front of federal government assistance for small business. And they like to use the SBA to provide assistance for small business. That's right. No, absolutely. That totally makes sense. And before we, we start uh, wrapping up in here, I would love to see if what are some of the things that you think for Global Wire advisors or people getting into the online space, buying this online businesses? Are, are there any things that you think people don't really get that it's not so obvious from working for, uh, with you guys or any not secrets, but things that people commonly miss? make mistakes when it comes to working with an advisor like you guys? Well, in terms of common things that people don't get, I think that we still see individual buyers uh, coming into the process, having not done a tremendous amount of homework on the industry. And when I say the industry, again, there's a lot of business types that fall into digital, but we're seeing, we still see that. So What helps a buyer, and actually this will help them always get more comfortable with any potential perceived risk around a business, is it's easy to just kind of rush into the process, start looking at businesses, start to, a lot of times, and this isn't meant to be an insult in any way, but a lot of people come into the process saying, I'm a smart person, I've got a good business background, I can analyze a business, no problem, I'm good, let me just start looking at deals, right? And unfortunately, what happens is that usually ends up being a problem for them because they inevitably run into things that they can't get their arms around. And, and what I've, anytime a buyer gets to something where they just can't either understand it or 
kind of analyze the risk to a place where they feel comfortable with how the risk probably lays out, that usually kills it. And then they move on to the next one. And we see a lot of buyers who they look at 50 deals, 100 deals, 200 deals, and they never do any of them. (laughs) And and I'm sort of like, well, at some point you got to say, well, how come I can't ever find a deal that looks good to me? And I think that would be helped by really coming into a process. So if you're thinking about buying a company, it doesn't matter what type of company it is, but if you're thinking about before you even start to look at deals, try to really get educated on the sector, really get educated on the industry. I love to have conversations with buyers who are just starting their search. And I don't consider it a waste of my time if I talk to a buyer and they're not really looking at any at a deal right now. Uh I'm just like, okay, well, let me help you know what to look for and give you an idea of what you're going to see, how we look at the market, all of that. And and I love to you know have those conversations and hopefully be of help so that whether they work with us or work with someone else that their search gets, it's very efficient. I think we unfortunately see too many times where buyers get frustrated and they end up making a, a, a snap decision because they've been out looking for deals for eight months and they haven't found anything and they think they need to do something. Mm-hmm. So they'll end up buying an inferior asset because they kind of ran out of time. Yeah, And so you're going to save so much more time kind of really understanding that industry before jumping in with two feet and looking at looking at deals. Because look, there's other people in the market that have done the homework and they're going to be ahead of the game. That's right. Right. And they're going to they're either going to outbid you on a good asset because they understand it better or they're going to avoid a bad asset because they understand it better. That's right. And so that would be my main thing with with buyers is just, and and I can say this having been on that side of the table myself personally many times. I've bought a number of businesses over the years kind of in that under $10 million range. So I'm not speaking from the standpoint of never having been in those shoes. I I get it. And there's been times where I even had to uh, scold myself and say, wait a minute, you don't quite know enough about this yet to be looking at this deal. Great. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think the last thing with you guys and the, the company, the, the services that you guys offer with Global Wire Advisors, I would love to see. We touched race on um, kind of like the seller side and how you guys take them through the journey, even months or years before they plan that. So for the buyers, you're also mentioning there's a similar process as well. Or what is it that you guys uh, do with buyers? Well, I think our, our we technically have a buy side search, you know, capability here at the firm, which is you know pretty traditional kind of for an investment bank. We'll do both sell side and buy side type engagements. I will say that the vast majority of our work is sell side work. But if a buyer wanted to come to us and engage us to do a buy side search for it is something we would do. I would say more often than not, though, we're just sort of here as kind of friendly neighborhood resource guys <laughs> as guys who are going to spend a little time if, if you're really interested in learning about the market or certainly obviously any individual deal that we're working on. We're kind of there to, to sort of have those conversations on more of an informal basis. When it comes to a live deal, I mean, we certainly pride ourselves on being very service oriented for both sides of the table. And we would hope and 
and expect that any buyers that have worked with us, whether they close deals with us or not, w- would say that Global Wired is, they're very helpful. They are very quick to get us information. They're very um, willing to explain things and lay things out. And at the end of the day, whether you decided to move forward with the deal or not, you can say, I got everything I needed to make my decision. Uh-huh. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, guys, this has been phenomenal. And Chris, do you have any final advice or you, Jason, any, any final advice for the listeners to wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I would just say if for your buyers, we we have a section on our website that says for acquirers with a series of questions. We segment all of our all the buyers that we keep on our quote list, depending on the type of business that they're looking for. So we don't waste their time putting everything in front of them. So that would be something for your buyers, for any buyers that might turn into sellers in your audience or any folks that are listening that that are wanting to potentially exit in the next six to 12 months. We would love to have a conversation. You probably your audience can you know knows knows by now that we like to be educational. We like to talk to people who own e-commerce businesses and and get them up to speed and educated on what's going on in the market and how that might align with what their goals look like. So, yeah, our best hub for us is our website, Global Wired Advisors. Type that into Google, and we're we're number one. <laughs> we did our job from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. This is great information. Very, very uh, helpful. So I appreciate you guys. Thank you thank very you so much. much. Thanks for having us. All right. This is it, guys, for this episode. Until next week, Gabriel Murillo with Acquire and Scale. <laughs>